Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art and we're back to our story today. I'll be reading to you from Anthony Trollope's Christmas at Thompson Hall. Well, we'll go ahead and jump right into the story. When we last left off our plucky heroine, um, poor Mrs. Brown, her husband, having a terrible case of the man flu, needed a mustard poultice. She went and made one, got into the room, put it on him, and accidentally placed it on the wrong man. So let's go ahead and uh, get started on our story. We'll find out what happens next. So I invite you to come and sit with me by the Christmas fire. And I'll read to you from Christmas at Thompson Hall by Anthony Trollope. Continuing Chapter 2, Mrs. Brown's Failure. There on the pillow before her lay the face of a stranger. She had put the mustard plaster on the wrong man. Not Priam wakened in the dead of night. Not Ditto when first she learned that Aeneas had fled. Not Othello when he learned that Desdemona had been chased. Not Medea when she had become conscious of her slaughtered children could have been more struck with horror than was this British matron as she stood for a moment gazing with awe on that stranger's bed. One vain, half-completed, snatching grasp she made at the handkerchief and then drew back her hand. If she were to touch him, would he not wake at once and find her standing there in his bedroom? And then how could she explain it? By what words could she so quickly make him know the circumstances of that strange occurrence that he should accept it all before he had said a word that might offend her? For a moment, she stood all but paralyzed after that faint, ineffectual movement of her arm. Then he stirred his head uneasily on the pillow, opened wider his lips, and twice in rapid succession snored louder than before. She started back a couple of paces, and with her body placed between him and the candle, with her face averted, but with her hand still resting on the foot of the bed, she endeavored to think what duty required of her. She had injured the man. Though she had done it most unwittingly, there could be no doubt that she had injured him. If for a moment she could be brave, the injury might in truth be little. But how disastrous might be the consequences if she were now in her cowardice to leave him? Who could tell? Applied for fifteen or twenty minutes, a mustard plaster may be the salvation of a throat ill at ease. But if left there throughout the night upon the neck of a strong man, ailing nothing, only too prone in his strength to slumber soundly, how sad, how painful for aught she knew how dangerous might be the effects. And surely it was an error which any man with a heart in his bosom would pardon. Judging from what little she had seen of him, she thought that he must have a heart in his bosom. Was it not her duty to wake him, and then quietly to extricate him from the embarrassment which she had brought upon him? But in doing this, what words should she use? How should she wake him? How should she make him understand her goodness, her beneficence, her sense of duty, before he should have jumped from the bed and rushed to the bell, and have summoned all above and all below to the rescue? Sir, do not move, do not stir, do not scream. I have put a mustard plaster on your throat, thinking that you were my husband. As yet no harm has been done. Let me take it off, and then hold your peace forever. Where is the man of such native constancy and grace of spirit that, at the first moment of waking with a shock, 
he could hear these words from, from the mouth of an unknown woman by his bedside and at once obey them to the letter. Would he not surely jump from his bed with that horrid compound falling about him, from which there could be no complete relief unless he would keep his present attitude without emotion? The picture which presented itself to her mind as to his probable conduct was so terrible that she found herself unable to incur the risk. Then an idea presented itself to her mind. We all know how in a moment quick thoughts will course through the subtle brain. She would find that porter and send him to explain it all. There should be no concealment now. She would tell the story and would bid him to find the necessary aid. Alas, as she told herself that she would do so, she knew well that she was only running from the danger which it was her duty to encounter. Once again, she put out her hand as though to return along the bed. Then thrice he snorted louder than before and moved up his knee uneasily beneath the clothes as though the sharpness of the mustard were already working upon his skin. She watched him for a moment longer and then, with the candle in her hand, she fled. Poor human nature. Had he been an old man, even a middle-aged man, she would not have left him to his unmerited sufferings. As it was, though she completely recognized her duty and knew what justice and goodness demanded of her, she could not do it. But there was still left to her that plan of sending the night porter to him. It was not till she was out of the room and had gently closed the door behind her that she began to bethink herself how she had made the mistake. With a glance of her eye, she looked up and then saw the number on the door, 353. Remarking to herself, with a Briton's natural criticism on things French, that those horrid foreigners do not know how to make their figures, she scudded rather than ran along the corridor, and then down some stairs and along another passage, so that she might not be found in the neighborhood should the poor man in his agony rush rapidly from his bed. In the confusion of her first escape, she hardly ventured to look for her own passage nor did she in the least know how she had lost her way when she came upstairs with the mustard in her hand. But at the present moment her chief object was the night porter. She went on descending till she came again to that vestibule, and looking up at the clock saw that it was now past one. It was not yet midnight when she left her husband, but she was not at all astonished at the lapse of time. It seemed to her as though she had passed a night among these miseries, and, oh, what a night! But there was yet much to be done. She must find that porter, and then return to her own suffering husband. Ah, what now she should say to him, if he should really be ill, how should she assuage him? And yet, how more than ever necessary was it that they should leave that hotel early in the morning, that they should leave Paris by the very earliest and quickest train that would take them as fugitives from their present dangers? The door of the salon was open, but she had no courage to go in search of a second supply. She would have lacked strength to carry it up the stairs. Where now? Oh, where was that man? From the vestibule she made her way into the hall, but everything seemed to be deserted. Through the glass she could see a light in the court beyond, but she could not bring herself to endeavor even to open the hall doors. And now she was very cold, chilled to her very bones. All this had been done at Christmas, and during such severity of weather 
as had never before been experienced by living Parisians. A feeling of great pity for herself gradually came upon her. What wrong had she done that she should be so grievously punished? Why should she be driven to wander about in this way till her limbs were failing her? And then, so absolutely important as it was that her strength should support her in the morning, the man would not die, even though he were left there without aid, to rid himself of the cataplasm as best he might. Was it absolutely necessary that she should disgrace herself? But she could not even procure the means of disgracing herself, if that telling her story to the night porter would have been a disgrace. She did not find him, and at last resolved to make her way back to her own room without further quest. She began to think that she had done all that she could do. No man was ever killed by a mustard plaster on his throat. His discomfort, at the worst, would not be worse than hers had been, or too, probably, than that of her poor husband. So she went back up the stairs and along the passages, and made her way on this occasion to the door of her room without any difficulty. The way was so well known to her that she could not but wonder that she had failed before. But now her hands had been empty, and her eyes had been at her full command. She looked up, and there was the number, very manifest on this occasion, 333. She opened the door most gently, thinking that her husband might be sleeping as soundly as that other man had slept, and she crept into the room. Chapter 3 Mrs. Brown Attempts to Escape But her husband was not sleeping. He was not even in bed, as she had left him. She found him sitting there before the fireplace, on which one half-burned log still retained a spark of what had once pretended to be a fire. Nothing more wretched than his appearance could be imagined. There was a single lighted candle on the table, on which he was leaning with his two elbows, while his head rested between his hands. He had on a dressing gown over his nightshirt, but otherwise was not clothed. He shivered audibly, or rather shook himself with the cold, and made the table to chatter as she entered the room. Then he groaned and let his head fall from his hands onto the table. It occurred to her at the moment, as she recognized the tone of his querulous voice, and as she saw the form of his neck, that she must have been deaf and blind when she had mistaken the stalwart stranger for her husband. "'Oh, my dear,' she said, "'why are you not in bed?' He answered nothing in words, but only groaned again. "'Why did you get up? I left you warm and comfortable.' "'Where have you been all night?' he half whispered, half croaked with an agonizing effort. "'I, I have been looking for mustard.' "'Have been looking all night and haven't found it. Where have you been?' She refused to speak a word to him till she had got him into bed, and then she told her story. But alas, that which she told was not the true story. As she was persuading him to go back to his rest, and while she arranged the clothes again around him, she, with difficulty, made up her mind as to what she would do and what she would say. Living or dying, he must be made to start for Thompson Hall at half-past five on the next morning. It was no longer a question of the amenities of Christmas, no longer a mere desire to satisfy the family ambition of her own people, no longer an anxiety to see her new brother-in-law. She was conscious that there was in that house one whom she had deeply injured and from whose vengeance, even from whose aspect, she must fly. 
How could she endure to see that face which she was so well sure that she would recognize, or to hear the slightest sound of that voice which would be quite familiar to her ears, though it had never spoken a word in her hearing? She must certainly fly on the wings of the earliest train which would carry her towards the old house. But in order that she might do so, she must propitiate her husband. So she told her story. She had gone forth, as he had bade her, in search of the mustard, and then had suddenly lost her way. Up and down the house she had wandered perhaps nearly a dozen times. Had she met no one? he asked in that raspy, husky whisper. Surely there must have been someone about the hotel, nor was it possible that she could have been roaming about all those hours. Only one hour, my dear, she said. Then there was a question about the duration of time in which both of them waxed angry, and as she became angry, her husband waxed stronger, and as he became violent beneath the clothes, the comfortable idea returned to her that he was not perhaps so ill as he would seem to be. She found herself driven to tell him something about the porter, having to account for that lapse of time by explaining how she had driven the poor man to search for the handkerchief, which she had never lost. Why did you not tell him you wanted the mustard? My dear. Why not? There's nothing to be ashamed of in wanting mustard. At one o'clock in the morning, I couldn't do it. To tell you the truth, he wasn't very civil, and I thought that he was perhaps a little tipsy. Now, my dear, do go to sleep. Why didn't you get the mustard? There was none there, nowhere at all about the room. I went down again and searched everywhere. That's what took me so long. They always lock up those kinds of things at these French hotels. They are too close-fisted to leave anything out. When you first spoke of it, I knew that it would be gone when I got there. Now, my dear, go to sleep, because we positively must start in the morning. That is impossible, said he, jumping up in the bed. We must go, my dear, I say that we must go. After all that has passed, I wouldn't not be with Uncle John and my cousin Robert tomorrow evening for more, more, more than I would venture to say. Bother, he exclaimed. It's all very well for you to say that, Charles, but you don't know. I say that we must go tomorrow, and we will. I do believe you want to kill me, Mary. That is very cruel, Charles, and most false and most unjust. As for making you ill, nothing could be so bad for you at this wretched place, where nobody can get warm either day or night. If anything will cure your throat for you at once, it will be the sea air. And only think how much more comfortable they can make you at Thompson Hall than anywhere in this country. I have so set my heart upon it, Charles, that I will do it. If we are not there tomorrow night, Uncle John won't consider us belonging to the family. I don't believe a word of it. Jane told me so in her letter. I wouldn't let you know before because I thought it so unjust, but that has been the reason why I've been so earnest about it all through. It was a thousand pities that so good a woman should have been driven by the sad stress of circumstances to tell so many fibs. One after another she was compelled to invent them that there might be a way open to her of escaping the horrors of a prolonged sojourn in that hotel. At length, after much grumbling, he became silent, and she trusted that he was sleeping. He had not as yet said that he would start at the required hour in the morning, but she was perfectly determined in her own mind that he should be made to do so. As he lay there motionless, and as she wandered about the room pretending to pack her things, she more than once 
almost resolved that she would tell him everything. Surely then he would be ready to make any effort. But there came upon her an idea that he might perhaps fail to see all the circumstances, and that so failing, he would insist on remaining that he might tender some apology to the injured gentleman. An apology might have been very well had she not left him there in his misery. But what apology would be possible now? She would have to see him and speak to him, and everyone in the hotel would know every detail of the story. Everyone in France would know that it was she who had gone to the strange man's bedside and put the mustard plaster on the strange man's throat in the dead of night. She could not tell the story even to her husband, lest even her husband should betray her. Her own sufferings at the present moment were not light. In her perturbation of mind, she had foolishly resolved that she would not herself go to bed. The tragedy of the night had seemed to her too deep for personal comfort. And then how would it be were she to sleep and have no one to call her? It was imperative that she should have all her powers ready for thoroughly arousing him. It occurred to her that the servant of the hotel would certainly run her too short of time. She had to work for herself and for him too, and therefore she would not sleep. But she was very cold, and she put on first a shawl over her dressing gown and then a cloak. She could not consume all the remaining hours of the night in packing one bag and one portmanteau, so that at last she sat down on the narrow red cotton velvet sofa, and looking at her watch, perceived that as yet it was not much past two o'clock. How was she to get through those other three long, tedious, chilly hours? Then there came a voice from the bed. Ain't you coming? I hoped you were asleep, my dear. I haven't been asleep at all. You'd better come if you don't mean to make yourself as ill as I am. You are not so very bad, are you, darling? I don't know what you call bad. I never felt my throat so choked in my life before. Still, as she listened, she thought she remembered his throat to have been more choked. If the husband of her bosom could play with her feelings and deceive her on such an occasion as this, then, then, then she thought she would rather not have any husband of her bosom at all. But she did creep into bed and lay down beside him without saying another word. Of course, she slept. But her sleep was not the sleep of the blessed. At every striking of the clock in the quadrangle, she would start up in alarm, fearing that she had let the time go by. Though the night was so short, it was very long to her. But he slept like an infant. She could hear from his breathing that he was not quite so well as she could wish him to be. But still he was resting in beautiful tranquility. Not once did he move when she started up, as she did so frequently. Orders had been given and repeated over and over again that they should be called at five. The man in the office had almost been angry as he assured Mrs. Brown for the fourth time that Monsieur and Madame would most assuredly be wakened at the appointed time. But still she would trust no one and was up and about the room before the clock had struck half-past four. In her heart of hearts she was very tender towards her husband. Now, in order that he might feel a gleam of warmth while he was dressing himself, she collected together the fragments of half-burned wood and endeavored to make a little fire. Then she took out from her bag a small pot and a patent lamp and some chocolate and prepared for him a warm drink, so that he might have it instantly as he was awakened. She would do anything for him in the way of ministering to his comfort, only he must go. Yes, he certainly must go. 
and then she wondered how the strange man was burying himself at the present moment. She would fain have ministered to him too had it been possible, but oh, it was so impossible. Probably before this he would have been aroused from his troubled slumbers. But then, how aroused? And what time in the night would the burning heat upon his chest have awakened him to a sense of torture which must have been so altogether incomprehensible to him? Her strong imagination showed to her a clear picture of the scene. Clear, though it must have been done in the dark. How he must have tossed and hurled himself under the clothes. And how those strong knees must have worked themselves up and down before the potent god of sleep would allow him to return to perfect consciousness. How his fingers, restrained by no reason, would have trampled over his feverish throat, scattering everywhere the unhappy poultice. Then, when he should have sat up wide awake, but still in the dark, with her mind's eye she saw it all, feeling that some fire, as from the infernal regions, had fallen upon him. But whence he would know not, how fiercely wild would be the working of his spirit. Oh, now she knew. Now she felt. Now she acknowledged how bound she had been to awaken him at that moment, whatever might have been the personal inconvenience to herself. In such a position, what would he do? Or rather, what had he done? She could follow much of it in her own thoughts. How he would scramble madly from his bed, and with one hand still on his throat, would snatch hurriedly at the matches with the other. How the light would come, and how then he would rush to the mirror. Ah, what a sight he would behold! She could see it all to the last widespread daub. But she could not see, she could not tell herself, what in such a position a man would do. At any rate, not what that man would do. Her husband, she thought, would tell his wife, and then the two of them, between them, would put up with it. There are misfortunes which, if they be published, are simply aggravated by ridicule. But she remembered the features of the stranger as she had seen them at that instant in which she had dropped his beard, and she thought there was a ferocity in them, a certain tenacity of self-importance, which would not permit their owner to endure such treatment in silence. Would he not storm and rage and ring the bell and call all Paris to witness his revenge? But the storming and the raging had not reached her yet, and now it wanted but a quarter to five. In three quarters of an hour they would be in that demi-omnibus which they had ordered for themselves, and in half an hour after that they would be flying towards Thompson Hall. Then she allowed herself to think of those coming comforts, of those comforts so sweet, if only they would come. That very day now present to her was the 24th of December, and on that very evening she would be sitting in Christmas joy among all her uncles and cousins, holding her new brother-in-law affectionately by the hand. Oh, what a change from pandemonium to paradise! From that wretched room, from that miserable house in which there was such ample cause for fear, to all the domestic Christmas bliss of the home of the Thompsons. She resolved that she would not, at any rate, be deterred by any light opposition on the part of her husband. It wants just a quarter to five, she said, putting her hand steadily upon his shoulder, and I'll get a cup of chocolate for you so that you make it up comfortably. I've been thinking about it, he said, rubbing his eyes with the back of his hands. It will be so much better to go over by the mail train tonight. We should be in time for Christmas just the same. 
that will not do at all, she answered energetically. Come, Charles, after the, all the trouble, do not disappoint me. It is such a horrid grind. Think what I have gone through, what I have done for you. In twelve hours we shall be there among them all. You won't be so little like a man as to not go on now. He threw himself back upon the bed and tried to readjust the clothes around his neck. No, Charles, no, she continued. Not if I know it. Take your chocolate and get up. There is not a moment to be lost. With that, she laid her hand upon his shoulder and made him clearly understand that he would not be allowed to take further rest in that bed. Grumbling, sulky, coughing continually, and declaring that life under such circumstances was not worth having, he did at last get up and dress himself. When once she saw that he was obeying her, she became again tender to him, and certainly took much more than her own share of the trouble of the proceedings. Long before the time was up, she was ready, and the porter had been summoned to take the luggage downstairs. When the man came, she was rejoiced to see that it was not he whom she had met among the passages during her nocturnal rambles. He shouldered the box and told them that they should find coffee and bread and butter in the small salle à manger below. I told you that it would be so when you would boil that stuff, said the ungrateful man, who had nevertheless swallowed the hot chocolate when it was given to him. They followed their luggage down into the hall, but as she went, at every step, the lady looked around her. She dreaded the sight of that porter of the night. She feared lest some potential authority of the hotel should come to her and ask her some horrid question. But of all her fears, her greatest fear was that there should arise before her an apparition of that face which she had seen recumbent on its pillow. As they passed the door of the great salon, Mr. Brown looked in. Why, there it is still, said he. What? she said, trembling in every limb. The mustard pot. Uh, they have put it in there since, she exclaimed energetically in her despair. But never mind, the omnibus is here. Come away. And she absolutely took him by the arm. But at that moment, a door behind them opened, and Mrs. Brown heard herself called by her name. And there was the night porter with a handkerchief in his hand. But the further doings of that morning must be told in a further chapter. Trollope sure does like to uh, leave you hanging between, between chapters. <laughs> All right. I'd love to hear what you think of the story so far. This poor Mrs. Brown, she just wants to get home to see her family. And everything that could possibly go wrong is. And Mr. Brown is, is really starting to irritate me with how sick he's play acting at, I think. Uh, you know, it's like a typical man. You know, he feels a little bit under the weather and suddenly the whole world has to stop. And, you know, and he needs to be babied and, and paid attention to. It's, it sounds like that uh, joke I see it floating around on Facebook once in a while that says something along the lines of did you know that the pain a woman experiences during childbirth is still less than what a man experiences when he has the flu or when he has a cold yeah yeah we like we're kind of big babies sometimes but anyway that was part two of our story 
stay subscribed to the podcast. I'll have the next two parts coming out um, between now and Christmas Eve. I also have a couple of interviews yet to come that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. Let me know how your Christmas season is going. I'd love to hear from you, your favorite movies, traditions, memories. What is it that makes Christmas special for you? Let me know. You can always find me at CozyChristmasPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Cozy Christmas Podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, the best thing that you can do is to share it on your social media account, share it with a friend, leave us a rating and a review, because that really does help get the word out. I could not do this without you guys, and I appreciate it all so much. If you would like to help us out in a financial way, there are several options for you listed in the show notes. You can make a donation on Kofi.com. And if you send me your address, I will send out a Christmas card with a bookmark or sticker as my way of saying thank you. There's also uh, some t-shirts, podcast merchandise, hand-painted ornaments I've done over the uh, this past year. And a special thank you to Karen and Angela your support, not just your financial support, but your encouragement, your positivity, your absolute joy over what I do here really helps keep the podcast moving and it keeps me inspired to keep doing what I'm doing. So thank you and others who have given so generously this past year. Thank you. And until next time, let's remember to honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.